This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years, and they remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. With summer just around the corner, it really does feel that way, we aren't far away from barbecue season and all those gorgeous summer parties, which means you should have your cook's matches to hand to take you from lighting the barbecue at lunchtime right through to the evening when you can get some candles lit in the garden. No kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves to barbecues to candles. If you're stuck for what to cook this summer, then Cook's Matches loves compiling recipes to show easy, delicious and family-friendly dishes. Head over to their Instagram page at Cook's Matches and join the Cook's community. Find out more online by visiting cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, so I'm very sorry for disappearing on you last week. Our whole house got struck down with the most horrendous virus, and on top of everything, I completely lost my voice, genuinely sounded like the Marlboro Man with a 90-a-day cigarette habit. It was not nice to listen to, and, and you just wouldn't have wanted to have heard from me. But please forgive me, and especially when this was such a fun episode with the wonderful Daphne Oz. I feel like we laughed our way through this one, and I really hope it's as fun to listen to as it was to record. I'm still laughing at the bit when there. I was telling Daphne that I was eating a serious amount of ice when I was pregnant. And I was thinking that it was weird. Um, and she confirmed that, yes, perhaps I should go to the doctor because it could be a sign of anemia. <laughs> um, but all was OK in the end. Um, but yes, quite a strange craving. I normally hate ice and I, I don't know if that's weird in itself, but I was honestly eating so much of it. And now completely back to not really having any feelings about ice. Anyway, in this episode, we talk about Daphne's new book, which has now just come out. It's called Eat Your Heart Out. I haven't got my hands on a copy yet, but I'm very excited to see it and cook from it because Daphne really does make delicious food. And as you will hear from this episode, food is genuinely her passion in life. And that is just always really exciting to hear. She also happens to be one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. And now that I've dipped my toe into the world of TikTok, yes, you can find me at Margie underscore Nomora. Uh, Daphne is also on TikTok and of course she is great there too. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I will stop waffling and let you hunker down with Daphne Oz. My guest today is Daphne Oz. Daphne is an Emmy award-winning television host, New York Times best-selling author, chef, and entrepreneur focused on the worlds of food, beauty, wellness, fashion, and media. She also happens to be the mother of four children, proving that you can have a very successful career and be a present mother. Daphne is the eldest daughter of the one and only Dr. Oz, possibly the most famous doctor in America, but Daphne is a veteran TV personality herself. She spent six seasons as the co-host of hit TV series The Tube, has been a judge on Junior MasterChef, and now as one of the co-hosts of The Dish on Oz, a weekly series on The Dr. Oz Show. Daphne brings the latest in food news, family-friendly recipes, and expert cooking tricks. After studying at Princeton University, Daphne received her chef's degree from the Natural Gourmet Institute and is a graduate of the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. When asked what cooking means to her, Daphne has said, new memories, freedom, and fun. At the end of the day, I want to have fun in my kitchen. I want it to be my kingdom, and I want that for my readers. Welcome, Daphne. 
Thank you. And can I just have your voice on loop? Anytime <laughs> anyone asks for my bio, that was so <laughs> relaxing and stunning to listen to. <laughs> I'm available to follow you around, Daphne. <laughs> Uh, I turned Margie on. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Where in the world are you now, Daphne? Because are we speaking to you in Florida? Because I think you moved from New York in the middle of last year, having lived there your whole life. So how are you finding Florida life? So, you know, what's funny, I've had a bit of a, um, you know, extra topsy-turvy couple of years in that we actually moved down to Florida for the first time in December of 2017, right after I had our third baby. I wanted to experience a maternity leave pretty much for the first time. I wanted it to be somewhere not in the dead cold of Manhattan winter in an apartment with three children under three. <laughs> and so we escaped down to sunny Palm Beach, uh, Florida in December of that year, lived here, you know, in the end, it it had only intended to be a a few months stint. And then we fell in love so quickly with the community here and with the, just the ease of being outside and the ease of, of having children at that age, um, living in this, in this area that we stayed for almost two years. And we left here and as, you know, as, as you and I were just chatting about, we left here when I was seven months pregnant with our then fourth child. <laughs> we flew to LA where I was getting set to tape MasterChef Junior for Fox. We lived there as a family for two months. We flew home at the end of July back to New Jersey where we'd intended to put down roots and have my children go to continue school where I'd gone to school. I gave birth two weeks later. We welcomed our fourth who is like the most riotous, hilarious little joy bunny. Um, Gigi. We call her the Duchess because she's quite the um, uh, quite the little tyrant <laughs> sometimes. And then lo and behold, you know, we, we got to live there for what ended up being not much more than six or eight months because once the U.S. opened up after COVID hit, we pretty quickly realized like where we wanted to be if we if we were going to be spending quite a bit of time at home and quite a bit of time, you know, trying to find a way to be outside as much as possible um, was back down in Florida. So now we're back here again. And I uh, I have to say in answer the quick answer to your question is we love it. And I wondered, because something we ask all of our guests, how do you envisage life on the desert island? Are you good in your own company? (laughs) Are you resourceful? Or would you be desperately trying to find your way out? I have to say, I really, I'm an Aquarius, so we might have to go this route. I do really crave and enjoy alone time, which I obviously don't get very much of these days. I think I would probably relish it for a couple days, maybe even a week. And then I would get really probably paranoid and neurotic and like miss miss everybody too much and need to come running right back home. I am, you know, I have, I have to um, give myself credit. I am the oldest of four and I am as a result of that. uh, And also just like always wanting to be a little adult. My mom had me when she was 22. So I very much feel like we kind of grew up together. She's the oldest of six. And I was always sort of shuttling around with her siblings. And so I always felt like a much older soul than I was. And as a result of that, I've ended up being kind of like the mother hen in a lot of the relationship, like friendships and, and um, relationships, uh, you know, with, with my siblings and things of that nature. So I am quite responsible. Like you might want me on your desert. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you'd, you'd be top of my list. I, I could talk my way into that, around the island. I'm not sure where I'm going to go. <laughs> uh, You've said that you learned to love cooking from your mother and she in turn learned from your grandmother who made dinner every night for her husband and six children. So let's dive straight into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. This is an interesting question because there are two very visceral memories to me. The first is one that I'm sure many listeners can relate to, especially those of any Italian heritage. My grandfather, actually, who it was not the primary cook in the family by any stretch, but he grew up in Staten Island and he had a couple recipes that were his gold standards, um, a stuffed artichoke that we eat every Christmas. I'm really looking forward to having that soon. Um, and a, a beautiful red sauce that he makes that I so vividly remember being, you know, five and six years old, standing next to him and my mom and my grandmother, um, and, you know, dipping hunks of bread into this bubbling sauce and, and having that for supper. And the smell of that, the smell of the garlic and the oil and the, the red splatter on your clothes, inevitably, like that was quintessential childhood for me. And one other version of that is that my mother is vegetarian, has been since she was 13. And I distinctly remember 
the lentil loaf that we would eat that we would eat all the time as a kid. So you know, we go both extremes. <laughs> Are those good memories of the lentil loaf? Or you know what? I loved it, and I maybe it's because I didn't know better. Like I didn't know about pork and and beef um, uh, meatloaf, but it was I love it to this day. I still wish that the, that we could find that recipe again because it was quite good. I, it was not a it wasn't even like a homemade thing. It was one of those quick dinners. My mom, you know, had had the four of us, and it was busy and my dad was uh, frequently at the hospital. And so we would have these sort of, um, she always managed to doll it up and doctor it up. So you never felt like you were eating stuff that wasn't homemade because my mom is an amazing cook. And when she would throw down, she really would throw down. But on the weeknights when it was just the kids and her eating, we would make this and it was like a, it was some, you know, frozen meal. (laughs) It was really good. It was really good. It sounds like food and the a social aspect of food and cooking played a really important role in your childhood. I, I read that family dinners were a really big deal. And you say that even if that meant that you all ate at 10 p.m. when your dad got home from the hospital, it's sort of where you did your family's bonding. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was something that unwittingly or, or you know, it, wasn't, it was never that my parents set out to have us eating at 10 o'clock at night, but it was so much where my parents connected and where they got to have that time of the day. And it just felt so natural to let those of us kids who were still awake at that time be a part of that moment. And um, so, yeah, we would have family dinners, 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And usually it meant, you know, I'd already eaten some kind of dinner before (laughs) that time. Um, And I also have vivid memories of the weekends when we would oftentimes find ourselves at my grandparents' farm. They lived about an hour and a half from us and we would go down there most weekends and there would be, you know, 20, 25 of us gathered around the dinner table. And it was always just this sort of raucous affair and everyone talking and laughing and, you know, disagreeing. And, and what I remember from all of those memories that are actually the process of getting ready for it. So like I would come home from school, my mom and I would think about what we wanted to make for dinner. I would go grocery shopping with her. We would cook together. We would, you know, get the meal ready. We'd wait for my dad to come home. We would eat all together, share the day, share the day's news. And it was a, really special. I, I, as I think about it now, as a mother with young children of my own, you can't come at kids directly always, you know, you can't just like come right in and say, well, tell me about your life. Tell me about your day. You know, that feels like an interrogation. It was such a oblique and soft way. And like a, like a really lovely way to get to share about ourselves. And for me to get to learn about my mom and watch her in action and learn about our our family and our heritage and our special recipes without there ever being some kind of like strictness to that experience, which I really, really appreciated probably now more than I even did as a child. Yeah. Completely free of pressure. It sounds amazing. Yeah. And absolutely. It's where I learned to love food first and for the taste of it and the the fun of eating it. But it's like, there is something very unique about the joy my family gets from a delicious meal. (laughs) We we truly, truly lose our minds over great bites. And, um, and that was very much passed on to me in those moments. A lot of the interviews that I read focused on this assumption that growing up with a doctor as a father, Dr. Oz, you would have grown up eating this incredibly healthy diet and, and that food would never have been any sort of issue. But I think it, it wasn't at quite as clear cut as that because it wasn't so much that you were eating unhealthy food, but perhaps you did have a stage of, of feeling like you were eating a bit too much of it. Yes. Well, just to the point I was making earlier about having already eaten my meal by the time we sat down for dinner, that was often a piece of it. It was that the the bonding my mother and I were doing over, over food or my grandmother and I were doing over food, you know, led to eating certainly more than I was hungry for more mm. often than I needed to be eating. And for more reasons than just to fill that hunger void, right? It was very much because it's fun and, and everyone else is eating together and it's a way to celebrate. Ooh, try this bite. You know, it's very enticing and, and, um, very sensory to have that immersion into food that it wasn't until I was a senior in high school that I realized I knew a lot about nutrition just by osmosis, you know, li- living at my dad's dinner table and my mom, um, my mom and my grandmother are both very involved in nutrition, very involved in complementary medicine and the sort of thought processes around how food can and should be medicine. So I was getting it from both directions, but um, it dawned on me that I had all the right information, but I hadn't necessarily figured out how to emotionally connect to that information. And I think that was a much more critical piece of the journey for me was how do I make this 
How do I make this information stick in my life? How do I make it useful for me? How do I make it something that doesn't make me feel like I'm sacrificing the, the tastes and the sensations I want, but I'm also not putting my health at risk. And, and at my heaviest, I was, I mean, this is pre-children. Pregnant, I, I reached significantly heavier than this. But at the time I was writing my first book, um, The Dorm Room Diet, I, I um, had hit 180 pounds, which my, on my frame is about 40 pounds overweight. And I felt very held back by that. And honestly, I, I can't claim I was bullied or anything of that nature, you know, very gratefully, because I, I know so many kids who were, and it is the most painful um, experience. But I, I, I was very lucky to grow up with a very supportive, large family. I was, I was confident. I felt good in, about myself, but I realized that I let, that I, that I let opportunities pass me by, or I didn't take chances I could have taken, or I didn't perform the way I thought I could have performed on the sports fields, for instance, because of this extra weight I was carrying around. So I had this real motivation to see what life could be like if I found a better balance. And um, when I got to college, I started experimenting. I saw, I, I saw this is such a unique time in people's lives where you potentially for the first time ever are living away from your parents with a great deal of responsibility that with it comes a great deal of opportunity for failure or for success. And I wanted to see if I could make it successful. And so I, um, I sort of identified the danger zones, the pitfalls for me personally, but they end up being pretty generically the places where people fall into that, um, freshman 15 void. <laughs> and, you know, I'm talking about late night studying and going, you know, the parties and the, and the watching TV with friends and sort of the mindless consuming that we can do and figured out really great paths and techniques that I could use to still enjoy those things. I still went to the keggers and the pizza parties and watched the TV shows with my friends and did all and I studied late at night and all the rest. But I I found ways to do it so that I had that experience without overindulging. And I and I wrote a book called The Dorm Room Diet detailing what I did. And I found it ended up being very successful, mainly because I was writing so authentically from the perspective of the reader. Like I am you I was living this whole life. This worked for me. Let me share it with you so that um if it's something that you're interested in, it could be it could create the same positive change it created in my life. But I do think it's still one of the things that people would most quickly assume is that my, you know, that access to information is the tool for change. And it's funny because it's, it is the foundation for change. You have to know what your goal is. You have to know what you should be doing, but it is really on that human level, that connection, that making it personal, that, that being the vehicle that people can really like learn it from in the moment in their life where they are. And, and people always say, you know, meet people where they are. Like that is so accurate. And it really gave me, sorry, the last thing I'll say, cause this is a long answer for you, but it really gave me something even more valuable than my health and my, and my, you know, security and knowing how to feed myself. I had always felt that being the overweight kid in a family full of health nuts was going to be my cross to bear. And ironically, or perhaps perfectly sort of the way it always does, this thing that had been very painful for me and a challenge and a struggle for me became the lens and, and sort of honed my voice on what I, what, you know, what, what my perspective was, what my authentic perspective was that I could then share first on the chew. And, and now through so many television shows I've been a part of, so many books I've written, so many of the platforms I've been able to create are about that feeling of body positivity that is authentically created through that struggle of not always having it. And I think that's been a really important and sort of defining a positively defining element of my life, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can relate to so much that you say about having the the second meal. <laughs> I remember so vividly going yes. having second breakfast with my grandmother all the time. Oh. And food and emotions are so inextricably linked. I can completely understand what you describe about all those feelings of love and comfort. And that's what you had with your mom and grandmother. And you associate that with food and, and eating brings back those feelings. And it's such a difficult thing to dissect. Absolutely. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that is the first dish that you learned to cook. The first dish that I learned to cook was chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Obviously an easy one to find motivation to learn. You know, finally, the reason I wanted to learn uh, that recipe was because my mom is a, a, a focus is primarily on savory. You know, she really loves to experiment and she's kind of a wild and free cook and she has this beautiful palate. Like she'll 
taste something and you'll see your brain kind of working and then she'll go to the cupboard and she'll grab like one spice and suddenly it's a completely different, instantly elevated dish. Her her mouth really, her palate is so honed in that way. But because she's a wild and crazy cook, she's not really for following recipes very closely, which <laughs> baking requires. <laughs> and so she has her couple specific baked things that she does that are like a specific birthday cake that we love or things that really are family dishes that we ask her to make over and over again because they're so good. But when it comes to baking regularly, it's not really her thing. And so I think I was seeking out, you know, I wanted, I wanted to eat more chocolate for cookies and I wanted to be able to do it really well. And it's kind of a fun, it began this lifelong journey of trying to find the perfect recipe. <gasps> and if you want like a fun hour, go ahead and Google that for perfect chocolate chip cookie recipe. And you will find millions of versions of, of people's attempts to create just that. And the beautiful part is that, um, people's perspective on what that is, is actually quite varied. Um, for me, it is a, since you, since I'm sure you're curious. For me. I definitely am. <laughs> yeah. Cause there are so many variations of the perfect Absolutely. chocolate chip cookie. So for me, the perfect one has a crisply toffee perimeter with little ripples towards the edges where that brown sugar kind of molten lava hardened before it could spread more. So you get that crisp exterior and then that chewy, dense center that's almost undercooked. Like it has to be so closely on the verge of that for me. And um, anyway, so I've spent the better part of like 30 years trying to figure <laughs> out how to do this. And I actually put up a recipe on my um, Instagram. Tell I do, a, I do a, a recipe video every Thursday on Instagram. And I put one up a couple months ago of, of, I didn't say it was the perfect chocolate cookie. I said it was the official chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> and I have to say it does, it does get pretty close. <laughs> that sounds like my idea of a perfect cookie as well. I have to say. Yep. And I'll tell you one other trick. It is the chopping of chocolate. You know, if you're, if you're still doing the morsels while those are adorable and, you know, very classic, they have stabilizers in them that prevent them from spreading properly. Where if you get a chocolate bar and chop it up, you get that like thin stratification, the layers of chocolate amidst the toffee vanilla portions of the cookie. And it is epic. Oh, Daphne, I need one of your cookies right now. <laughs> I know you're pregnant. You absolutely need this cookie right now. <laughs> also another secret, which I think you're also a big fan of, it, it's chilling it overnight, isn't it? Which is so hard to do. Do you know what's so funny? You're so right. Well, that's why you make a double batch so you can eat the dough and yes. then have the cookies still. Um, also another, when I was reading up on everyone else's versions, another woman had said, you know, you make a batch so that you can make a few now and then refrigerate the others and wait for those for tomorrow. But I, um, I actually learned a bit about why that fermentation period overnight is important from the serious eats blog. And it's because it allows I gather long form carbohydrates to degrade somewhat. So you get a much more, or maybe to link better. I, now I'm, now I'm totally confusing it. <laughs> in either way, it enriches the flavor and gives it a totally different texture. So I thought that was really cool. I love, I am the nerd who would like, you know, eat the cereal box and have to eat the cereal and be reading the back of the box at the same time. Like I need to know everything I can know about my food. It makes me enjoy it so much more. So I just found that illuminating in a really fun way. And now I need to go back and read it again since it's been a while and con confirm which version of the carbohydrate <laughs> is helping. <laughs> but you're right, because it, it's the science of cooking that makes it so fun and, and so magical. Yes. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you wrote your first cookbook, The Dorm Room Diet, whilst you were a student at Princeton. So I imagine you were very, you were in your very early twenties, which is really impressive. Was everyone else around you being as entrepreneurial or were you a bit <laughs> of an outlier in that sense? I actually think everybody was working on themselves in some way, right? There were, they were growing personally. They were trying new sports. They were trying new clubs. They were, you know, going off and studying abroad. Uh, writing that book for me was, yes, it ended up being, you know, something that I created a, a career, you know, as a result of some of the experiences I had in doing it, but it was so much about the personal exploration. It was, and, and not just the, the physical, you know, having lost the weight and done it in a, you know, it, it ended up being um, the, a, a 10 step lifestyle program that really works. And it's, that was so important to me, but it was also just like the personal elements of it. The, the learning how to not procrastinate and have better time management skills, 
getting over my fear of public speaking. I mean, imagine like a shy kid who I always preferred to hang out with adults. I really, like I said, spent so much of my time with my mom and her older and her younger siblings who were then sort of my, they felt like older siblings to me, even though they're my aunts and uncles. And I imagine having to like get comfortable and facile speaking to your peers about weight loss as like an 18 year old girl. It was, it was so um, trial by fire, but it ended up being so revealing to me about the way that humans connect, like the more vulnerable I could be and the more personal I could be about, you know, to the extent I was comfortable about um, what had really pushed me to want to create this lifestyle plan, what had worked for me in it, how I'd come to those conclusions. Um, the more, positive benefit I could see happening in the crowd. And the more they wanted to be there and wanted to be with me and wanted to learn with me. And, and that was such a gratifying experience. So it, it definitely took some like, you know, unique, like I remember spending the summer after my freshman year of college, pretty much like in my grandparents' house, not traveling, not doing like fun stuff that my peers were doing, but writing this book and making sure I hit deadlines and things. So it, it did take some sacrifices, but it, I, I do think it was because I was getting rewarded by doing it in so many ways. Yeah, I think it's such a mature thing to do, writing a book, but also, as you say, the subject matter, such an area of personal growth and vulnerability. I think that's amazing at 18. I definitely could not have done that myself. <laughs> had you decided before you were writing the book or as you were writing the book, had you decided what you wanted to do career-wise or what did you always want to do growing up? I sort of felt I always wished I'd known more certainly what the answer to that question would have been. I remember as a little kid, I'm wanting to be a veterinarian. I mean, I obviously idolized the doctors in my family, my dad, both my grandfathers, my uncle, lots of doctors in my family, all surgeons. And so I really had this fascination with being the first woman surgeon in my family. And I actually ended up going and doing pre-medical post back at Columbia for a term after I graduated from Princeton and really in that time frame confirmed that it was not for me confirmed that like, <laughs> while I love it and respect it so much, I and would have been thrilled to have that like deep knowledge of the human body and how, how we can help it. I found that I actually felt better able to do that in a lifestyle context. Like I wanted to help keep people off the operating table, not have to address them once they were there. And I also being realistic about it felt like I really wanted a family. And I think, you know, being a mother and a surgeon, it's not that it's impossible. Certainly many, many have done it, but it is hard and requires so much, you know, sacrifice and, and diligence around how to structure that. So I, I was doing a lot of calculus in my head and, and ultimately decided it was not going to be the path for me. At some point in college, I had dreams of being in the CIA. That was part of the <laughs> goal too. So it was all, it was a little bit all over the place. <laughs> but that's what college is about, isn't it? Is figuring, is figuring out largely what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Okay. So I'm, so I, the way that I've taken to answering this question, because I've been asked it before is that I just say the first one that comes to mind, because I have been lucky enough in my life to eat so many truly spectacular, memorable bites. And that is partly because I seek them out. Like my husband will tell you probably the thing you'll notice about me first is that like I plan trips and days and everything about around like what food experience can I have yeah. here? <laughs> um, but I, the first thing that came to mind when you asked me today was this spectacular sandwich that I had. I know the sandwich is the answer. Um, we went to Sicily as a family when my, I was pregnant. I think I was, I think, yes, I was, I was, I was about seven or six months pregnant with our third. And I remember going into this farmer's market, which again is one of my all time happy places on earth, a European farmer's market where the produce is like so ugly and so delicious and ugly, meaning not like the perfect pristine polished version we get in our grocery stores in the U S sometimes more of the like gnarly fresh from the tree totally unpreened and utterly perfect version of food. Um, and so I walked to the back of this market and there's an, a little old man. Actually, what I see first is a never ending 
line of people, people who looked like locals waiting around, you know, in front of the stand. And by the time I had crawled my way up to the stand, I saw there was a little old man working this tiny sandwich station with, um, you know, a variety of meats that he was slicing by hand and of some cheeses he was slicing by hand. And his famous sandwich that every single person in that line was waiting to get was this gorgeous ciabatta spread with a pesto rosso, which is like, um, sun-dried tomatoes and currants. I think there were, pro- I obviously didn't see him make it, but I'm like, this is from taste memory, what I'm thinking was in this dish. Sundry tomatoes, pine nuts, currants, um, maybe an a anchovy in there. There was something else in this plate. Oh, oh, like a, like a Worcestershire. So there was something like malty and I couldn't place it. And then fresh mozzarella, prosciutto, fresh basil, and lime zest, Ooh. which was the craziest combo. And it was so spectacular. I could not stop. I was just the most delicious thing. It was, you know, Sicilian food is beautiful that way. It does, it does salt and sweet together. It does sour in things all the time. Um, a few bitter moments sometimes with eggplant, things like that. And it was such a powerful hit of like everything on your tongue being tantalized at the same time. It was so just that, that wonderful memory of finding him at the back of the, of the farmer's market was a very special highlightable meal. Oh, that sounds incredible. And you know, you're onto a good thing when you can see a big queue of locals. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to counter the best dish, I'd like to ask you about the strangest thing you've ever eaten, because you've been hosting food TV for many years, and I think you've tried all manner of things. I heard you say you've tried fried Kool-Aid and smoked salmon ice cream, which... So that is the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. <laughs> smoked salmon ice cream is the singularly worst, most disgusting thing I've ever put in my mouth. Who made it for you, Daphne? So I was someday at the Chew and they were doing like, you know, we did these mashup shows every once in a while that were that were about putting cuisines together or like unexpected things together. And I don't, I don't remember. It was some ice cream company we'd found that was doing weird and zany flavors. And this was so uniquely terrible. A, I don't really like smoked salmon, to be honest. But B, I, I couldn't get that taste away from my mouth because the fat of the cream kept it on my tongue. And then couple that with it being so sweet. It was just the most disgusting thing. But they'd like infused it in the cream and also left pieces oh, of the fish. Oh no, like chunks. <laughs> it was so gross. But was it the kind of thing where you had to pretend it was no, okay? No, no, no. I almost okay. threw up on okay. camera. Okay. Oh no, I literally <laughs> almost threw up on camera. I may actually have thrown up on camera. They may have just cut it. I was appallingly gross. <laughs> <laughs> So you've said that you were shy as a teenager and lacking in confidence as a student. You now present shows that are watched by millions of people. Do you remember the first time you presented live TV and how you felt? I do. So we launched um, we launched The Chew in September of 2011. And I was 25 at the time. I'd never hosted television before. And we were in the uniquely tough position of launching this show in replacement to a long running soap opera that was beloved by millions. And so, <gasps> That's so scary. It, yeah, it was scary because even though it certainly wasn't our fault that it was taken off the air, we were of course the catch all for their vitriol and it was painful. It was truly painful and it was uniquely painful. I would say, I mean, look, everyone thinks their experience was like unique in some way, but I will speak for myself. I was 25, had never hosted television before was, you know, novice, certainly the most novice in the kitchen, the most novice hosting television, the most novice in every regard on this show of me and four wonderful, you know, other TV presenters. And it was at the dawn of social media. So I got to hear front and, you know, and before I'd had any chance to develop defenses against like trolling online. So I was just at the mercy of everybody's bad opinion. <laughs> and, oh, Daphne. And, yeah. Oh no, it was vicious. It was truly vicious. And also because as a, as a woman, you know, it's not just, oh, she's a terrible TV presenter or, oh, she can't cook. It's also, she's hideous. She looked fat in her dress. She's, you know, d- just everyone hates her. Like it was so crazy. The amount of judgment or the amount of, 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 you know, ad hominem attacks people felt confident and comfortable to make from the, um, you know, lazy boy armchair of their parents' basement and the keyboard warriors as they're so affectionately named. And what's beautiful about that experience, honestly, and like, I can only say this with the remove of the last 12 years, because obviously I did not feel this at the time. At the time I was like, why do they hate me? Like what's wrong is uh, you find your people 
and you find them by continuing to be you. And the more you can be you, the more quickly you will get rid of the people who don't are never going to like you. Like that was the tricky part is I think there's a people pleasing part of you when you're so young and impressionable that just it's like, well, maybe if I dress this way, maybe if I do this, like they'll like me then. And it's actually the opposite because the more you try to be something for other people, the more obviously it is not, the more obviously it is strange and not real. And people respond to that immediately and negatively. And so I eventually learned how to be okay with the fact that not everyone was going to like me, but that to find the people who could learn from me and could, you know, want to to spend their time with me, I had to just be unapologetically who I was. And it was remarkable. The more I leaned into that, the faster and faster I picked up the, you know, audience and, and followers who were so much on the same wavelength and on the same level and thinking about same, the same things and, and wanting to, you know, learn from each other. And also the more confident and comfortable and better I felt in my own skin. So it was this, it was the opposite of a vicious cycle. It was a, a hugely positive cycle, oh. but it took a real like leap of faith away from trying to make everybody else happy to focus on what made me happy and, and trust that that would help me find the people that um, would be a part of that with me. Yeah. It's such a difficult lesson, isn't it? Cause unless you're exposed to that kind of thing, you're just, you are just around people that, you know, you get on with and that love you. And then, and then learning that actually you'll never be all things to all people. It's such a difficult lesson, isn't it? Painful. Right. Let's talk about the fourth desert island dish. Daphne, what is your favorite sandwich? So recently, only because it's such a quick and easy meal, and I oftentimes find myself sort of running out the door and needing just like something filling and refreshing um, to take with me, I will do a a piece of toast, like an Ezekiel toast, which I don't know if you have it in in the UK, but it's a a wonderful wonderful sprouted toast that I love. And um, I will spread it with hummus and then thinly sliced cucumbers and a nice big drizzle of sriracha uh, spicy sauce on top. And it's so refreshing. I would venture that your taste buds might actually really like it right now yeah. because it's crisp and cooling and also like a little tangy, spicy, really nice for, you know, that I would, I, when I was pregnant, I would always crave, I was actually like a watermelon freak. I just really wanted wet and cold and like hydrating. I'm thirsty yeah. all the time. I've been so eating yeah. a weird amount of ice. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that's yeah. like worrying, but yeah. I just... Well, they say that might be anemia. Oh, <laughs> no, definitely yeah, is that true? No. I need to go to the doctor. I, <laughs> you know, I'm not, not to fight you. I feel like I craved ice a lot too. And I remember someone saying that to me. Um, but, but also maybe you're just thirsty. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe a combination of the two. Yes, yes. You've done so many amazing things in your career. Looking back now, I mean, obviously you're only just getting started, but when you look back now at the past, you know, 11 years, what are you most proud of career-wise? I mean, the the highlight of just the affirmation that we were doing something really special and really unique and bringing people a lot of joy was when we won as a cast the the Emmy Award for informative talk show hosts and it was for, that was for the Chew and it was um, I was also pregnant at the time I've spent so much of the last <laughs> seven years eight years pregnant um, but I I remember being shocked I mean I've like you know you've watched award ceremonies before in your life and you're always kind of amazed when people get up on stage and clearly had no idea they were even in the running like let alone were possibly going to win. But we very much got up there. I, my my co-host Carla Hall and I were there together, and they. I remember sitting at the table as they were getting ready to make the announcement of who'd won, and we were all like with our producers already laughing and sort of hanging out, and really not even like there was just no world in which we thought we were actually in the running to win. And they called our names out, and Carla and I both started screaming like we played the least cool least like you know we well, of course we are you know we like we were losing our minds yeah that's what you want from an award winner i don't want someone to play it cool i want someone really excited well we'll have to dig this video up for you then because it was serious and so we're screaming we lose our minds we like i like the rest of that whole evening feels like a totally fugue state moment i barely remember any of it because i was just riding on such a high of of excitement and elation that we'd um 
that we'd gotten to be there for that experience. And we got up on stage. We like thanked everybody. We, you know, went screaming off the stage. And I, I hold on to that as again, having started where I described you as the, sh- as the show that was there to like catch the ire of a, of a, of a audience who was very unhappy that their prize show had been taken off the air and to fight through that first year of real, uh, you know, pain as a show, pain of growing and figuring out what we were and what we could talk about and what we sort of wanted to talk about, uh, you know, getting to know each other as hosts, me personally going through what I was going through with like the social media element of things. And also genuinely just wanting to learn how to be a television host sort of on the fly and, pick up my culinary skills and have them be able to shine the way my co-hosts were and uh, you know, all the things we were doing to have that gratified sort of uh, with this experience was really powerful and special because it also, it, not only did it mean we were having commercial success with the audience who was resonating with us, but we also had found, you know, the, the respect of our, of our peers, which meant the world. That was really, really powerful. That's incredible. Right now, I thought we could do a little quick fire round if you're up for it. Awesome. I'm terrible at quick, clearly, as we've decided. (laughs) As we've both already seen. But yes, I'll try. So the idea is to just say the first thing that kind of comes into your into your mind. Okay. What do you always have in your fridge? Cheese. What's the one ingredient that makes everything better? Hot sauce. What's your favorite music to cook to? I'm gonna go with like 60s French. This is a difficult one. Cooking or eating? Eating. Okay. That's not difficult. <laughs> That's a very easy one, actually. What is your favorite restaurant? Okay, my favorite restaurant. I love Mandolin Aegean Bistro in Miami. And let's just leave it there. There's so many. And there's a hundred million restaurants I love, but that's one of my favorites. Okay. These are really quick ones. So pudding or cheese? Oh, and Justa. Justa in LA. G-J-U-S-T-A. <laughs> <laughs> Daphne, you are the worst person at quick fire ever. <laughs> Putting your cheese. I know. What <laughs> uh, was the question? <laughs> oh my goodness, Daphne. Putting your cheese. Oh, mm, pudding. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Soup or salad? Salad. And not that food is good or bad, but what's your guilty pleasure food? Raw cookie dough. Ooh, okay. Right, we're on to the fifth Desert Island dish, and that is the dish you eat the most often. The dish I eat the most often is probably a beautiful Greek-style salad and a bowl of either spaghetti squash or chickpea uh, rotini, chickpea flour rotini, with red sauce, uh, pecorino cheese and a big handful of arugula tossed in. Oh, goodness. That sounds amazing. Really good. Let's talk about your new cookbook, which comes out in the spring of 2022. It's called Eat Your Heart Out, which is such a good title. I know you refer to this cookbook as one of your babies. It's such a labor of love. <laughs> what are you most excited about for people to get from this book? You know, honestly, what I wanted this book to be is a an answer to people who say, well, you love food, you love eating. Obviously, listeners of this podcast will know that to be true. How do you balance it? Or how do you, you know, how can you, how can you make sense of ever restricting yourself and want, you know, wanting to be healthy? And my answer to that is so clear in my mind. And I wanted this book to be a way to explain it very succinctly to people, which is that not even, but especially people like me who live for the perfect bite, who explore and adventure through life, through food. We need to have a system of rebalance and a system of reset that doesn't force us to negate that love or undermine it or sacrifice it. That doesn't feel like a a radical departure from who we are, but that still lets us regain that feeling of strength and, and confidence in our skin when we need that reset. And for me, that can be after childbirth. It can be after times of a lot of stress or a lot of celebrating where I just feel like I've started indulging 
without the mindfulness that I typically try to use around indulging. And I need a chance to reset and get that composure back and to do it in a way that never compromises my extremely demanding taste buds. So this is a book with 150 recipes that are all fun and no fuss for clean eating for people who want to eat delicious food. (laughs) It sounds like the dream. Yeah, that's the hope, the hope. And it's also like on a grander level, it is that culturally we've been taught to think of health and and healthy eating, healthy living as like punishment in some ways or deprivation. And I am so committed to this idea that taking good care of yourself should feel as pleasurable as those indulgent moments, because you're feeling good as a result of it too. And you're doing something great for yourself. And we can only get to that feeling and that confidence, that, that food confidence and that security and that mindset, if it's still something that's delicious and fun to do. And so that's really the point of these recipes. They're not like weird recipes or, or things that take too much time or work or effort. And there are things that are still super delicious and, and indulgent feeling, celebratory feeling, but um, manage to do so with no gluten, no refined sugar and very limited dairy. That's amazing. And yeah, it's, it's the times where you're overindulging and you kind of you get stuck in this cycle and you realize you're not even appreciating what you're eating because you're just sort of, I don't know, you're in a different mindset. And so this book, this book sounds amazing. Can you tell me about the process of writing the cookbooks? What goes into creating a successful cookbook today for anyone who might be thinking about writing one? What's your process? So uh, maybe there's someone else who will have a different answer on this. I unfortunately... Well, or, or, you know, for better or for worse, was doing quite a lot of other things at the same time that this book was being written. So this book, part of why I talk about it as a, this labor of love and another baby of mine is it's taken the better part of four, almost five years to write since my last book. And the good part out of that is that it's really allowed me to authentically and genuinely collect the tips and tricks and recipes that have really worked in my life. And I've had, you know, several babies since then. So I was able to hone and, and garner those, that, that, those new experiences and filter them into the book. At the same time, I think, you know, there could have been more regimentation and orderliness to how I was creating these recipes. But I, I work with a recipe tester to, cause you want to make sure that these recipes are going to work in everyone's home and everyone's oven with, you know, with, with really well outlined steps that make sense to people. Because that's something else is I, I didn't want people guessing. You know, I, I feel like a big message for me has, has always been like, make your kitchen your kingdom, you know, have it be a place where you feel that freedom to experiment and play. And you only kind of have that confidence if you know the basics and feel good that like, you know what your goal is, you know what you're aiming for. So I try to give visual cues. I try to give auditory cues or like smell cues, you know, things that you're there that you're looking for to make you a more confident cook so that you can trust yourself and relax a little bit more since that's where the real like fun and catharsis and release of cooking comes from. But basically like I would either eat a, eat a meal that I made that I loved, or I would have an inspiration for an idea. I I'll write all those down. I will brainstorm with my recipe uh, tester and have her start testing certain different iterations of it. But then, and then like I tweak it, I test it again. I taste it again. I mean, it just goes back and forth. And the problem with anything creative is once you put it down and like it's in submission, it lives forever the way that it is, you know? So I, as you know, so difficult, isn't it? It's hard. It's well, we're so used to being able to edit and tweak and refine. And like at a certain point, you have to just lesson into the universe and, yeah. and move on. I know that must be such a strange feeling. It's a weird feeling, but I'll tell you what the best part is, is getting to do the photo shoot for these books. You get to see your recipes come to life in the most glorious way possible and it is that is that's what I look forward to, like the props of it and the food of it and the and these glorious images to live with forever. And they are that like these time capsules of your life. You know, it's beautiful that way. Mm. Well, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish. And that is your go to dinner party dish. So I make a really fabulous rigatoni olive vodka. <laughs> and it Yum. is um, something that I've crap. It's spicy. It's something that I originally was making for my daughter who loves rigatoni olive vodka. So I was making her the, ch- the child version. And then I started experimenting with making it spicy with some Calabrian chili paste. And it is divine. It is truly just like such an easy and delicious um, and u- universally appealing uh, meal. So I, my favorite sort of very easy, straightforward, but um, always appreciated menu is a either arugula and Parmesan or um, my grandmother's Caesar salad to start with. And then I will do this like, you know, intermezzo course with the uh, 
I also, by the way, I say that, but like, I usually put everything on the table and everyone serves themselves all at once. Oh, but that's the best. Yeah. Yeah, Like coursing was always so complicated and took me away from, I want to be able to sit there and have part of the conversation. Mm. So when I was trying to do things, it was just not working. So I put everything on the table, uh, the pasta, the salad, and then I'll do like a great roast chicken. I'll spatchcock it. So it's really juicy and and gorgeous. Um, Or I'll do like big, you know, roast branzino. I'm a big fan of whole roasted things, A, because I think it just feels more opulent and indulgent to like see the whole thing. And also because it actually, I find usually cooks more flavorfully when you have the bones still a part of the meal and, and uh, much harder to mess up that way. So, and then I'll have some nice crusty bread and, and soft salty butter on the table and lots of wine and that's it. Yeah. Oh, can I come? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what do you that? Do you normally serve a pudding? I do, but that's where the chocolate bars come in. So frequently, Especially if it's like a larger crowd, I don't bother to make everything on my own. I will focus on sort of one course that is special to me or, what, or you know, I'm sorry, the main meal is special to me. And then dessert, I might just make, you know, a big, gorgeous display. I, I love a centerpiece of fruit or vegetable. I've, I've started doing this, you know, recently, A, because... You can then reuse them and actually make something, which I love. But also if it's fruit and certainly in the winter time, we can do, you know, pears and citrus and whole nuts. And um, it's so lush and gorgeous looking in the center of the table. And then people can kind of pick it apart for dessert. And I'll, I'll always put out big plates of just broken up gorgeous chocolate. And people just want something to linger over and keep their fingers busy with. If I'm making something, my husband loves a torta caprese. So I will sometimes make that ice cream and berries. And I, I oftentimes will have like candied nuts around. So I'll just do a little, a little Sunday like that. Um, and sometimes if these people are very lucky, I will have made my chocolate chip cookies and they will be ready and waiting for them <laughs> even is, in the freezer. And then I just pop them in the oven. <laughs> oh, that is reserved for the very special guests. Very special guests. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? Well, I am going to have to give a shout out to my mother's cookbook, which I have to, does have so many of our family favorites. It's called The Oz Family Kitchen. But in addition to that, I love the Jelena cookbook. I love um, the Small Victories cookbook. I love the, uh, yeah, basically all the Odalangi cookbooks are so good. And I really wish he would just hurry up and open an outpost out here. It is so sad and tragic that I have to wait forever to get to London to eat his food. And um, you know what else I really love? Um, whole food cooking every day and canel a vanille, which I don't say French, but that is what it smelled like. So, um, <laughs> Sounds right to me. <laughs> yes, yes. Daphne, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Okay, so in light of my recent trip to Paris, where where it was, I was reminded of the first time I got to eat this meal. I'm going to go with this. So my first course is bread and butter, gorgeous French baguette with butter, lots of it, perfect, done. Second course is, I know we're going to have a martini with that course. Okay. Second is very very cold, very salt, very olivey, very briny, dirty, dirty, dirty. Then we're going to have um, a gorgeous chai vinaigrette salad, butterly lettuce, big bowl. And then we are going to have a perfect roast chicken and crispy, crispy French fries and a huge glass of rich red wine, not sweet, not tanning, but very full body. And then we are going to have a molten chocolate brownie a la mode with homemade vanilla ice cream and candied pralines over top. And with that, we are going to have an ice wine or a Tokai, which is a, a Serbian dessert wine or a port. You know, you take your pick. <laughs> Maybe another martini. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> roll, roll me on out to the desert island. <laughs> oh, my goodness, Why? Daphne. That sounds absolutely amazing. Best job ever. Why don't how can I do this all the time? Just like talk about ridiculous meals that I love. <laughs> Daphne, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. 
on TikTok at Margie underscore Nomora. <laughs> um, you can also sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye.